Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. All right. First of all, welcome to the show. And um, maybe before we plunge in here, let me just tell a quick story. It's one that I use in in, in setting up the topic we're going to talk about today. So I may have even said it on the air before, but whatever. So my significant other uh, has this place that she drives up to in Massachusetts around the holidays to get a certain kind of greenery. It's like a nursery, a nursery place. And there's a certain kind of greenery that they have that she likes and it's run by this very nice kind of older couple. And a couple of years ago, she was up there buying the greenery, whatever it is. And suddenly there's like a little conversation going on at the cash register. And one of these two people, or maybe both of them kind of in tandem, said that they were very upset about this whole thing where Michelle Obama's mother was going to be receiving a federal pension for the time she spent taking care of her grandchildren in the White House. Uh, and my significant other was not looking for an argument, and but was you know guessing that probably wasn't true. She came home. She told me, I'm very familiar with this kind of meme. Uh, I quickly checked like Snopes and PolitiFact in a couple of places. And it clear, it's clear it is an, uh, a story that's in circulation. It's obviously false, although it's a very difficult thing to prove a negative sometimes. Uh, you can't really hold up the federal budget and see, here's the place where Michelle Obama's mother's not getting a federal pension. See, right here, right on this line, she's not getting it. But anyway, it's an example of, of, of a falsehood that's in kind of oral informal circulation and probably digital in, uh, informal circulation. And what do you do? Do you like drive back up to Massachusetts and say, hey, by the way, I looked that up. What would be the point of that? And that's kind of the world we live, we live in. It may be the world that we always lived in, just writ a little larger. And that's sort of the overall theme of our show today. But the reason that we're doing this particular show is that Ben Winters has a new novel out. Ben Winters is the only novel with whom we have this arrangement. But if he writes a book, we do a show. That's just, I mean, if Toni Morrison would like to make that arrangement with us, I, we'd probably do it. But right now, Ben Winters is the only person uh, with whom we do this. Uh, he has a new book out called Golden State, uh, a novel. Uh, uh, and it's an indie next pick for January 2019. I don't know what that means, but it sounds good, Ben. Yeah, no, it is good. It's very good. It means that it means that the Independent Booksellers of America chose it as a as a favorite and, uh, and they put it on their special cool newsletter and it's in the fronts of stores. So That's excellent. Yes. All right. So in order to trigger you into making a little sort of thumbnail summary of the book, I'm going to play something that did trigger you. You did not answer the question of why the president asked the White House press secretary to come out in front of the podium for the first time and utter a falsehood. Why did he do that? It undermines the credibility of the entire White House press office no, it on doesn't. day don't one. Be so, don't be so overly dramatic about it, Chuck. What it, it, you're saying it's a falsehood, and they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. All right. That, of course, is an exchange that involves the crowd count at the Trump inauguration. And Ben, this was sort of a little bit of a trigger for you for plunging into the this particular topic. topic. Yeah. Tell yeah. us more. Man, that clip is amazing. I could listen to that. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. It, it, what's ama- Well, sorry, tangential. But what's amazing about it is the coolness and the ease with which that response comes out. Just there's a sense of, oh, you know, take it easy. Take it easy. You're <laughs> saying it's a lie. I'm saying, you know, well, it's I'm giving it this other name. Just everyone relax. Um, that was Kellyanne Conway, of course. But what we're talking about 
about is the very famous, um, infamous rather, I guess, moment where the day after President Trump's inauguration, Sean Spicer, the then press secretary, was sent out and insisted angrily that this had been the largest uh, crowd at a presidential inauguration ever. Um, And, uh, you know, it sort of would emerge in time that the president sort of was very sensitive to the notion that his inaugural would have been smaller. And so really pushed him to do that. But what was really striking at the time was the adamance with which this um, very clear untruth and also sort of unimportant untruth, right? Like who cares really? It's so un, it's so distanced from the actual, um, you know, what matters in terms of governance, but with the, the adamance with, with which he was insisting on this and what I found super interesting and troubling was that in the days and weeks after this event, after that press conference, after the inaugural, there would be, there were photographs available of the, of the crowd size and supporters of the president would be shown those photographs sort of side by side with the analogous photos from President Obama's inaugurals, and you could just see them I mean, in the pictures. Like objectively, there was more people in the the Obama photos, but supporters of the president would look at the two pictures and and asked which one had more people in it. They would they would pick the Trump picture just because they knew. And so, in other words, they were selecting their facts or selecting the truth based on their political affiliation rather than the other way around. And this was to me at that at that moment. Just sort of thinking about that, that was really what launched me into thinking about what this novel would, was going to become. Right. So a lot of us think about this topic. The way that your mind works, Ben, uh, is you managed to convert this into a sort of noir detective, which is one of your favorite genres, a story set in a dystopian um, but mock utopian future um, in, in which someone has tried to remedy the kind of problem that we're talking about, but with a different kind of absolutism, right? That's right. That's well put. I think that the the, the world that I created that is called the Golden State, they have, they have suffered some, the world has suffered some sort of enormous disaster resulting from the proliferation of untruth and the inability of of civilization to agree on what is true and what is false. And so, as you say, they've, they've somehow redrafted the rules of civilization to make it so that it is illegal to lie and that any falsehood, no matter how minor, is considered an offense against the state. Um, And, you know, so this is just sort of my roundabout way of approaching this issue, this question and thinking through what it means to not be able to agree on basic facts was rather than saying, okay, here's a world in which no one can agree on what the truth is. I sort of went to that next step and said, well, how might we fix this and what new problems, what new trouble does that effort to fix it create, you know? Because any dystopia, as we know from the history of dystopian literature, like any, all dystopias, they start with a utopia, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the people who run the dystopian society in 1984, you know, from their perspective, everything's great. They've, they've figured out how to completely control the populace. It is only from the perspective of the individual who realizes how bad things are, that that is actually dystopia. So there are ways, there's granular ways in which, through your act of a novelistic world building, uh, th- th- this kind of thinking has to be sustained. And some of it is is really kind of 
formalized. I mean, when people greet each other in this particular uh, utopian dystopia, uh, they don't say, how's it hanging? They say the square root of 144 is 12. They actually greet each other with indisputable facts. That's that's right. That, that's right. Like in the way that, you know, if I see you come, hey, how you doing? You'd say, I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm great. And then move on to the substance <laughs> of the conversation. In this world, it's, hey, how you doing? 10 is half of 20, but it's twice five. So it's ever been. So it ever shall be. So there, the civil, the, the the sort of small talk, you know, the the basic sort of lubricating, you know, easy conversation of society is all about reinforcement of reality. So I am telling you something that is true. You are giving me back something that is true. We are reinforcing the idea that we're all in agreement about what is real. Because as the characters in the book say, what kind of crazy world could we, could we live in when people can't agree? If people couldn't agree on basic facts. So there is a kind of fetishization of what is true and real and what we know and things that we don't know, people don't talk about. Mm-hmm. If there is a if there is a if there is something that is no one knows whether it's true or not or no one knows the actual details of something, they simply don't discuss it. It is out of mind. Uh, and that's the that's how everyone is sort of agreed implicitly or explicitly that this is how we can have a functioning world. That's right. In this world, the first rule of Schrodinger's cat is we do not talk about Schrodinger's cat. Um, something like that. Something like that. Yeah. So, so uh, now, uh, in this world that you've, you've created, a couple of things have to happen for it to work. There has to be commonly agreed upon reality so that you know when people are departing from commonly agreed upon reality. But to do that, one of the things that you're positing is there would have to be a record of everything. There would have to be, uh, yes. everything would have to be on the record, which means right. everything has to be surveilled, right? Yeah, that's right. Everything is surveilled. There are there are tiny little cameras everywhere. They're called captures. And the existence of these captures and the sort of omnipresence of them is taken for granted by everyone. You don't think of yourself as being on camera in that way that we still do in our world. When you walk into a convenience store and you realize there are cameras pointed at you or now there's this thing. I don't know how, like in my neighborhood, everyone has the ring doorbell where it's this, you know, it's a little camera that when you ring the bell, it's pointed at you. And so the owner of the home can access their on their smartphone and see who's at the door. And we still in our world have a sort of moment of, ooh, that's weird. I'm on camera. I'm being filmed. And you might modify your behavior somewhat or you might just at least be conscious of it. In the golden state, that is everywhere all the time. And what would be distressing or confusing is a moment where you realize that you're not on camera. In this weird way, the people in this world would think if something is not being recorded, then how will we ever know for sure that it has happened? If that reality is not captured and put in the archives that it can be referenced later, there might in some be some disagreement about what happened. There might be some a possibility that the events of that moment we could not in the future agree upon, and that would be a disaster. It won't in some way be a real thing that happened unless everyone has a a way of uh, of agreeing that it was real. So the other thing that is required then is uh, if, in fact, lying, if intentional departure from the truth uh, is going to be a very serious crime, a felony, really, uh, in this world, then there have to be people who are specifically assigned to enforce this. So you create kind of a, de- a detective squad of human lie detectors, people who seem to have some almost preternatural ability to, to know that someone's lying. Yes. And not only that, they have themselves a license to lie in a sense. They have a license to um, to hypothesize or uh, because if you're going to solve a crime, there comes a moment where you have to say, well, I think here's what might have happened. So I'm going to so I can follow up the leads and so forth. And those people are called speculators. And the hero of my book is is a speculator, one of the best. 
Uh, and in fact, for a long time, as I was working on this book, it was called The Speculator. But we decided that title didn't quite land. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it's about... What, what, basically, the book is about this guy. And at the beginning of the book, his name is Laszlo. At the beginning of the book, he is not only a true believer in the Golden State and in the sort of mission of... Um, of, of truth above all and objective reality above all he is an, an enforcer of that uh of that paradigm and the book really tracks his um deepening understanding of how dangerous it can be and um and then what happens after that so like all ben winter's books this is a very thrilling and engrossing detective story thank um, you uh, and and it is meant, I think, you know, in many ways, this is the way that Raymond Chandler is meant to entertain us. And and I don't want to uh, step away from that, but I do want to step away from it and say uh, I, I'm wondering how much more than entertainment you want us to extract from the book. It it might seem ultimately that a, a possible conclusion I could draw from this book is that one of the prices of freedom is that you have to live with a certain amount uh, of granting people the ability to distort reality to serve their purposes, that it's, it would be difficult to have anything resembling the kind of freedom that we think about in connection with our own society uh, if, in fact, you could tighten the noose around people for lying. Well, I think that's a very uh, keen observation of that. I won't say that that's what I'm trying to get you to think, but it's certainly what I one of the things that I would like readers to think about. Right. I think I feel like I'm. it's always very dangerous to say, oh, I wrote this book to make people realize X or I wrote this. Part of why I wrote this book is to make you think Y about whatever, whatever it is about truth or about climate change or about immigration. Like if you're you know, if you sit down to write a book with a didactic purpose, mm-hmm. You're in trouble because I think you might as well be writing a 300 page pamphlet, you know, uh, it's propaganda or or it's at least at the very best case scenario. It's going to be a um, a, a book that that ages poorly. But I do think that in my books and I think in many, many people's books, there is some animating spirit, some idea, some problem or issue or um, I don't know, a piece of philosophy or politics that is out in the world that you are filtering and that your ideas or your concerns are, are playing out in different ways over the course of the book. And certainly in this case, this is a book about just, as you say, the relationship between our ability to say whatever we want and our uh, on one axis and on the other axis, our ability to have a, a functional and society where problems can be um, adequately addressed and, and solved, you know, because I think we I think we're all very conscious of this alarming moment we've come to in our bustling democracy and our bustling marketplace of ideas where there are very dangerous ideas that can spread very quickly. And there is a sort of gut level uh, sense of facts being less and less something. Okay, we can all start and say, okay, we all know what the facts are. Now we're going to disagree. We're going to argue vehemently about what to do about those facts. And more and more this sense of, well, I think the facts are this. And you turn around and say, well, I think the facts are something else entirely. And and if we can't all have some common understanding of what truth is, how are we ever going to solve these massive problems that confront us? Um, I think that's a good place for us to, to grab a quick break here. Uh, we're keeping Ben. We're going to add uh, another person who, in a nonfiction context, is wrestling with the same thing. And I think they're in a lot of the same places, too. But we'll see about that. Your luggage is checked through. Got inflation licked. I'll get right back to you. It's just a standard form. Tomorrow without fail. Pleased to meet you. Thanks a lot. Your check is in the mail. 
Marooned, marooned, marooned in a blizzard of lies. All right, so uh, we're back. We're talking to Ben Winters, as we often do when he writes a novel. He's written a novel called Golden State, uh, which is uh, a look at a future in which um, the attempt to address the problems we're having these days with truth decay, uh, as one study called it, uh, are, are they create an even worse problem. Uh, and But it's a great detective story, too. It's a thoroughly entertaining uh, read if uh, all you want to do is be entertained. But if you want to think about some ideas, there are some ideas. And I'm not sure yet whether we have James Owen Weatherall uh, with us yet. Uh, we have a different kind of connection for him. So let me just, uh, uh, I'll just shout him out right now. Uh, Jim Weatherall, can you hear me? I sure can. Oh, there you are. Okay, good. So you're both here. Good. So um, uh, that I should say a little bit more. Uh, professor of Logic and Philosophy <laughs> of Science at the University of California, Irvine, and the author of three books. His most recent, uh, written with Kaylin uh, O'Connor, uh, is The Misinformation Age, How False Beliefs Spread. I, I seem to be handing out compliments today, but th- I should just say this is a topic that I lecture about, and I've been waiting for somebody to write a book like this one. This is the one I think that that right now is kind of got its its mitts on the problem in a really interesting way. So um, I, I'm going to ask you both about uh, some of the same things. So, you know, we did a show a while back about flat earthers, you know, this driven partly by NBA basketball players and stuff like that. There's just actually, and just digital stuff, stuff on YouTube. There are just more people who are willing to consider the possibility, absurdly enough, that the earth is flat. Um, but, but Jim, and I'm going to have both you and Ben talk about this. I mean, I don't know that the earth is spheroid by observation, uh, right? I haven't gone out into space and with my own eyes um, beheld the the planet. So, when I say that that's a ridiculous thing for them to believe, what is it I'm saying? Am I saying simply that I, in a very associative way, I subscribe to some kind of canonical set of truths? Well, no. I mean, I, I think what what you're saying is that you understand that there are other people, people who you can talk to or whose uh, work you can read about or whose pictures you can look at who um, have gone into space or who have navigated around the world in a, a boat or have flown around the world in a plane or have done, you know, careful precision tests of how things sink below the horizon as they get more and more distant from you. And you can read about their evidence. You can hear about the theories that they've developed and decide based on that that uh, you think that they're telling a compelling story, that they've got it right. I mean, Ben Winters, there, there did seem for us to to us that there was an associative quality to all this. If you're an anti-vaxxer, uh, it's a pretty short trip to be a flat earther. Pretty soon YouTube will just direct you to some flat earther videos and you might go from there to being uh, a Sandy Hook false flagger, a person who believes that the shooting uh, in Newtown, Connecticut didn't happen. There seems to be a way in which once people start thinking, oh, well, maybe all the settled truths aren't really settled. Maybe we're not being told things that that expands somehow. Well, I think that I think, um, Jim, that I think is exactly right, that that, that we it's one of the sort of we have to because we are never I'm never going to walk. I'm never going to circumnavigate the earth. Right. I'm never going to um, travel to the moon. So to completely understand that it's there, you know, so we have to so many of the things that we take to be true with just you are 
because we rely upon the expertise of others or we rely upon things we've been told. Um, and once you start, I think what you're noting is that once a person allows themselves to sever that cord and say, oh, wait a second, I only believe that the world is round because I have been told that by experts, then why do I believe, for example, that this needle contains a fluid that will prevent my child from getting measles, mumps, and rubella? It's only because I've been told that by experts. My goodness, that it's sort of once you allow yourself to stop accepting the simple premise that we have to, to function in the universe, place trust in the expertise and in the history of, tr- of other, you know, the things that we're being told by other people, then suddenly you are unmoored from the very possibility of definitive truth. And then you, without realizing it, I think people start to pick and choose because, you, you know, of course, you'll still continue to believe that when that electricity is real because your washing machine works, but you'll stop believing that vaccines are real because of whatever community you're in or because of whatever you're hearing and choosing to believe. And that's a very dark road to start going down. So, uh, Jim Weatherall, there's, there's a thing I sometimes call the narcissism of the present moment, where we, we believe that things are incredibly bad right now in a way that they never have been before. This is something that your book explores. And there's a thought experiment I, I do with audiences sometimes. I'll say, look, imagine that there's a red switch on the wall. And I'll, if I throw it, we'll go back to like about 1970 in terms of media. You'll lose all your digital media and your smartphones and stuff like that. But you'll get back sort of Walter Cronkite and multiple daily newspapers in your market market and time and Newsweek will be in their glory. Uh, So how many people, raise your hand if you want me to throw the switch. And basically everybody over the age of 55 raises their hand in the audience and everybody under the age of 55 goes, no way. Um, But there's a way in which we probably do glorify the canonical past uh, as a time when you could really pin things down. I think we do. I I don't think that it's right to do that. Look, the way I think about it isn't so much about the present moment being bad in ways that you know the past wasn't, but rather being bad in different ways from <laughs> how the past was. You know, and I think that over time we get more sophisticated in how we, you know, adjudicate truth, how we come to, you know, validate sources, who we trust from, you know, different kinds of media. And I think what we're seeing right now is the emergence of new media that challenge some of the heuristics and some of the tools that we've developed for figuring out who to trust, what sorts of things are reliable. And yeah, it, it's about the, the ways in which misinformation is spreading that are new, that are enabled by uh, you know, social media, for instance, uh, and not you know, that suddenly misinformation is a problem or fake news is a problem. I mean, well, I, I'm going to stay with you for a second, Jim, but I do want to, I know Ben has some thoughts about the question I just asked, but I want to stay with you for just a second. One of the things I think you do well in this book also is there's a way in which we think about scientific inquiry as being this kind of clockwork almost. You know, you get, you get the information that you need, you come to a conclusion, you implement that conclusion in a way that benefits humankind. But I mean, you have lots of examples. I mean, even, you know, uh, I, I grew up thinking that ulcers were caused by stomach acid. Acid. Um, and since I don't read medical journals all the time, I was pretty surprised to find out about all this H. pylori stuff. But as you point out, it actually took a long time for, for science to convert all the avail- available evidence that they had into an action plan. Uh, that's right. And I think one of the things that it, maybe it's a, a disservice uh, done by some of the people who write about science or the way that science is taught is that you know it's presented to us as a, a set of settled facts 
um, you know, perhaps identified by some historical genius. But the fact is, it's a, a process. It's a process that involves many, many people uh, collecting all sorts of evidence, evidence that is often ambiguous, that requires a lot of work to uh, sort out and analyze, um, involves a lot of disagreement among scientists, and it takes time. And you know, one of the things that we do in, in the book is you know, we're trying to make the argument that social factors are essential to how uh, beliefs form. They're essential to understanding how false beliefs persist and spread, even when there's lots of evidence around. And they're also essential to understanding you know, w what sorts of practices are going to lead to reliable or, or true beliefs. And we focus on examples from science because scientists are arguably the closest thing we have to ideal inquirers, you know, people who are trying to get evidence and trying to form true beliefs on the basis of that evidence. And even in those cases, the process is messy and long and difficult and has a lot of false starts. Right. And there's that sort of structure of scientific revolutions thing where people chase one paradigm because it's already there uh, and, and add to it as opposed to making that quantum leap into another place. It takes a long time mm -hmm. for that to happen. So, Ben, you know, I, I, uh, I want to go back to that question about the, the switch on the wall where you can go back to a time uh, where there are maybe fewer sources of information, but more trusted sources of information. I'm sensing that you're not going to want to valorize that particular Idea. No, I would not raise my hand for the button. I, I think that the it's interesting, though, because I think part of what the distress that a lot of people are feeling in the sense of alarm and, and decay is this sense of like and it leads to this longing for a what is perceived as a simpler and more straightforward time, certainly in sort of the history of America's relationship to truth, where you would I've talked about Walter Cronkite, too, where you have this like, well, everyone would just go home at the end of the day and turn on the news and there would be this man. He would say, here's what happened. And you'd go, OK, well, there's the truth. Now I know it. Um and and now we live in this world where there are not only multiple, multiple, multiple sources of news, but also the news very often comes through a, a sort of filter of opinion or also that sort of algorithmic thing where I am getting the news that suits my pre-established interests and inclinations and you are getting the news that does the same for you. But the, it, I, I just don't think we can make a binary argument that one is better than the other, as as tempting as it may be when we feel like everything is getting is this jumble of competing truths. In part, I would just point out because th there is such a danger in, well, there is if there is one arbiter of truth, there may be a handful. And of course, Walter Cronkite was also, we're also talking about turning on the news and watching an old white man tell everybody what the truth is. And I think if there is one thing that we have definitively gained from the age of social media, and the internet for all the things that are troublesome about it. It is the diversity of, of voices and opinions and the idea that everyone, uh, meaning, you know, young and old and from all sort of places in society is uh, it has a, a way to participate, you know, and, and the, uh, yes, there are, we enter into these thickets of competing truth and there are dangers in that, but there's also a real value in distributing the, um, the power that comes along with, uh, with the voicing opinion and truth. So, um, Jim, I mean, we obviously do have a problem here that looks a little bit different from problems of the past. Although, once again, like the term fake news was used in the time of William, Je William Jennings Bryan. And we can easily summon to mind all kinds of myths and crazy ideas that have been believed in the past and sometimes intentionally uh, used to, to deceive people. Still, uh, I think people who really look at this often will say, but, uh, you know, what we saw in the 2016 cycle where these things that look exactly like news articles look like valid news articles that are that you know just 
they quack like them, they swim like them, they fly like them, but they're written by some person in Montenegro who's intentionally making stuff up in order to drive clicks and stuff like that. I mean, first of all, could we agree that this is at least a pretty unusual um, or different from the past kind of problem? Well, yes. I mean, you know, the the philosopher in me always wants to give counterexamples, right? So I'm inclined to say who sunk the main, mm-hmm. uh, you know, <laughs> why, why did this, <laughs> why did the Spanish American war start? Uh, but, but no, look, uh, uh, of course there's something special going on now. There's something that is at least distinctive from the point of view of the immediate past, right? That what's happening, what's happened in the last, uh, maybe three or four years is different from what happened in the 10 or 15 years before that. And so, you know, we have a group of people who, uh, you know, as a society are, are trying to figure out how to sort fat, fact from fiction, how to sort of renegotiate where you get your information, what should count as reliable, how you check stuff. Yeah, so, so I, I completely agree with that. Um, and, and then the question becomes, like, what does work? I mean, actually, I'll start this with Ben because you've given us a terrific uh, account of what wouldn't work. Um, in other words, your entire novel is basically uh, gives us a, a view of how not to deal with this problem. In the course of thinking that out, did you think about things that you think might be helpful? Gosh, I wish, you know, and I wish. And this is the this is the part where the novelist gets to shrug uh, his or her shoulders and say, well, it's kind of above my pay grade. Right. Right. Like that's a different section of the bookstore. You want solutions. Um, (laughs) I do, though. I think that it's what's interesting for me. And I I think that um, I I guess I came of age uh, as the Internet was dawning. Right. Like and I'll never uh, I had a. uh, at my high, uh, college graduation, I got to interview Kurt Vonnegut. He came to speak at my, in my uh, senior year. And uh, he said, among his other classic Vonnegutian opinions, he told me that the Internet was a fad and, uh, and it, would be, it would clear out soon. And that turned out not to be true. But uh, um, I do think that, uh, for, that for those of us for whom it has been an earthquake, right, a uh, sort of an overthrowing of what we understood communication to be and what we understood sort of, and you know, watch the newspaper business and the magazine business and all the sort of forms of traditional communication get sort of scrambled. And I think it has been, um, there's been a period of adjustment. And I am curious to see what happens to kids who are growing up, who are growing up swimming in this water, right? Like what, um, how will they, uh, as they age and mature and and sort of start to thirst for a sort of, um, a, a, I don't know, a more serious, uh, not serious is the wrong word, but once they start to sense that there are, there is trouble here, right, in these in the diffuseness of truth, are they going to be able to more naturally figure out a way to bridge this problem? Um, and in, I, I guess in the way that, I'm not sure exactly how to phrase this, but like when, when there was a time when a television commercial with, with the sort of the sort of things that we now look back at and say, well, that's so obviously untrue and ridiculous. The sort of thing where the doctor smoking the cigarette saying, well, you know, the uh, nine out of 10 doctors think that camels are the best, have the smoothest filter, whatever it is, you know, where things are so self-evidently untrue, so self-evidently BS or the way that we look at those the email scams from the early days of, you know, the Internet of like, oh, I'm you know, I, I, you know please wire five thousand dollars to save me i'm a a prince in this country whatever you know those sorts of things we look back at them now and we go well that's so clearly bs is there going to be things that indicate that to 
uh, readers, consumers um, who are sa- who have grown up savvy to this world, if that makes sense. Wait, are those Nigerian things BS? I'm not Sorry. My password Sorry. Sorry. So, yeah. so, Jim, before we I know you've run, lost a lot of money over right, the years. Well, just give, give up my password a little too much. But uh, so, Jim Witherall, one of the things that I think is really that you're getting at in a really interesting way is I think when we think about this problem and who's causing this problem, the answer is them. They are Russians and bots and right-wing Trumpy nuts and you know, that there's this sort of group of them that are causing the problem. But there's a way in which I I don't think we particularly like to inventory ourselves and go, wow, like I just believe everything that Malcolm Gladwell says. Maybe that's not such a good idea. Um, Maybe that's a different kind of oversimplification. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yes. Well, look, I mean, I think that this is really uh, consonant with what Ben was just saying. I think of this as an evolutionary process, right? As a kind of cultural evolution uh, some philosophers of science have uh, suggested that you know we should analogize it to something like an arms race, an idea that that Bennett Holman, philosopher of science in Korea, has pushed pretty hard. And I, I think that that's that that's right. It, there's a kind of back and forth that happens. So you know people come up with new ideas. Let's say that doctors say cigarettes are are good for you. Maybe that'll convince people. And, you know there were books written about this in the 20s and the 30s yeah. about you know how to get doctors and priests to you know get on board to sell your product. And that works for a while and then gradually people come to realize, hold on, this is just a way of of manipulating me. You know, I, I think if you you look at the demographics of to whom 24-hour cable news appeals and who shares fake news most often on on the internet, there are pretty big differences by age yes. group. Yeah. Older people do this more. I think that that's already a sign that the kind of thing that Ben is describing, you know, is is happening. We're already seeing people who you know sort of grew up with the internet being a little bit more sophisticated about how to evaluate information they get on the internet. Now, the thing that is really really important to remember here is that it's not a static process. 20 years from now, people who are great at sorting fact from fiction on Instagram or on YouTube are going to be terrible at it at whatever the, you know, new virtual reality yeah. media of the, the time is. Um, we're we're going to end in just a second here. I, first of all, I want to make sure I thank KCUI uh, in Irvine, California for bringing us uh, James Owen Weatherall. But yeah, Ben, did, it sounded like you had one more thing to say. No, I just I totally agree with Jim. And I feel like the standard bearer for this moment of, of changeover is perhaps this kid who testified on Congress about yes. how he uh, he decided to get vaccinated as soon as he turned 18 because his mother had been sucked into this uh, Facebook vortex of anti-vaccination. And the kid was like, wait a second, I am a danger to myself and others. I got to get myself right on this. And I feel like that is a very is it perhaps will be seen as a signal moment. Yeah. All right. So I think we need to stop here because we've got a one more segment here where we are going to talk very specifically about the arms race that Jim Weatherall is talking about. So uh, first of all, I want to thank him. Uh, his book is uh, written with Kaylin O'Connor, The Misinformation Age, How False Beliefs Spread. This is, I mean, I do, I I have a passion for this whole topic. I think it's a terrific uh, treatment of it and it has a lot of stuff in it that, that I hadn't known about. Uh, and I at least tell myself I know about this. Uh, ben Winters is always with us whenever he writes a novel. Uh, last time it was <laughs> Underground Airlines. This time it's Golden State, a novel uh, about this exact problem and what happens when you try a little too hard to solve it. Uh, I want to thank Betsy Kaplan also for producing today's show. Jonathan McPants is uh, on the board where uh, Wolfie usually is. Uh, and Seth is with us as an intern. And I'm sure there are a lot of other people. The, I'm sure the Mejiasaurus 
did some wonderful social media thing that we're benefiting from. So we're going to take a little break. Uh, we're going to come back. Uh, we're going to talk about where this is all going. We're going to talk with somebody whose job it is to try to figure out what the next thing is that you're going to have to figure out, the, the new way that misinformation can spread even more convincingly and require decoding. We're back uh, for our third and final segment here on the show, and we're going to talk to Aviv Ovadia, founder of the Thoughtful Technology Project, set to launch soon, and a non-resident fellow at the German Marshall Fund's Alliance for Securing Democracy. He was previously the founding chief technologist at the Center for Social Media Responsibility at the University of Michigan. So you've been listening so far to a conversation about, you know, what one report referred to as truth decay. So Aviv, and for all I know, you might have been one of the people sampled for this, but I remember a Pew Research Project, I think it was right after the 2016 election, where they were kind of exploring this question almost as an arms race. There are people out there who are trying to disseminate falsehoods using the most cutting-edge technology they can find, and there are people uh, trying to stem that tide using technological solutions. And so Pew asked like about a thousand experts, you know, are you optimistic or are you pessimistic? I mean, basically half of the people thought, nope, we're not going to be able to catch up with the people people who want to sow chaos and falsehoods. And then the other half said, no, we'll figure this out somehow. So maybe I'll start there with you. Where are you on that question? I think that it is possible to figure it out. but And we're on sort of the a much better path toward that than we were one year ago or two years ago. But we, we still have a lot of work to do. And um, we're definitely not heading there fast enough. So for people who just haven't kept up entirely with this, a year or two ago, as you say, how would you describe the problem and, and the landscape that it's sitting on? I mean, two years ago, Facebook and Google and Twitter were really not taking these problems as seriously as they needed to. And one year ago, the problems around the future of misinformation were definitely not being taken seriously at all. So that means the manipulation of audio or video, the, the whole idea of, of deep fakes and and many other sort of similar technologies that are going to be enabled, and that can actually exacerbate misinformation. Maybe you should even explain what you mean by deep fake. So that's one of the terms used to describe the manipulation of video using new techniques that are possible with artificial intelligence. And so, you know, currently you can, um, you know, go to a movie studio and, and, you know, spend millions of dollars and create, you know, whatever scenes you want. But that, that's very, very expensive. And the advances that, that, that are happening are making it much easier to do manipulation, whether that be making it look like someone is doing something they aren't, that they never did, saying something they never said, and that can be used in misinformation to make it seem like, you know, whether it be a world leader or your neighbor, are, are saying or doing things that, that they never did. So I'm assuming the fix, if there is one, or the remedy, if there is one, is the equivalent of kind of a carbon monoxide detector, right? That you, th there would be ways to look at something like that and identify it as faked. Potentially. Um, I mean, there, the challenge here is that that may not be possible in the long run. If the technology to fake is as good as the technology to detect or better, um, you're sort of at an impasse there. And so you actually need to create resilience in other parts of society that can handle the, well, for example, being able to trace the actual origins of a piece of content instead of looking at it in its current form to see, oh, is this currently fake? So when you say resilience in other parts of society... Elaborate on that a little bit. 
So the the way I think about this is there's this basically this knowledge pipeline where you know first you know you have some content like a video that's being being created and then it's distributed to people let's say through a social network or, or through TV and people either believe it or they don't and so this is the way it actually impacts individuals and and then there's the way it in fact impacts institutions whether they be courts uh, embassies politicians journalists and so at each of those stages you have places where you can mitigate or minimize the impact of fake content. And the other side of this that I think is really important to remember is that it's not just being misled by content that's fake, but it's having plausible deniability for content that's real. So when you say embassies, I assume you're talking about something that you refer to as uh, diplomacy manipulation. So to explain uh, that concept. I mean, as diplomats, you're making decisions based off information that you have, and the ability to manipulate that source of truth can affect the interactions between between world powers. And, and that can happen directly affecting what, to what diplomats believe, but also through impacting what a public believes and what they're pushing in terms of diplomatic action. I mean, so for example, if a segment of the public is convinced that, that one country is, is acting aggressively and they should be sort of shown their place, and that can sort of lead to escalations that can bring you closer to war, right? And you have real examples like the, the Qatar hack where a Qatar news agency was hacked to, to put out false reports and that triggered a crisis in the Middle East or in India and Pakistan where misinformation was flowing very, very rapidly in, a, in an environment where, which could escalate into full-on nuclear war. You want to be cognizant of the potential impacts of information in that environment. So um, obviously for diplomats, they can presumably try to develop, as you say, resilience in other areas. That might be true for diplomats, but for regular people, the people consuming this stuff, you've got a whole separate problem, right? Yeah, and I think that, that one of the things that, that's great is that we have, we, in some of these domains, you do have systems, like journalists do have systems of, of verification where that's sort of part of the culture. Uh, the same thing with in courts. There are already processes in place. Those processes, though, need to be hardened against new forms of attack. So let's, yeah, let's talk about another one of your terms, polity simulation. Uh, explain what's meant by that. You see that with, with, let's say, net neutrality, where the FCC website was, I think, on the order of 20 million comments submitted to that, the vast majority of which were purportedly against net neutrality. And then it turns out that, oh, wait, those were mostly bot generated. Mm -hmm. So you can see this directly as it affects, you know, let's say even government public comment periods. But you can also see that within public sphere social networks like Twitter, where people are, they're given the impression that there's this body of people who care about an issue and, and think it's very important or sort of pushing for it, where it turns out that actually that's actors who are specifically trying to manipulate public discourse. It may not even be based in the country where that conversation is relevant. To. Right. We saw that a little bit in the case of the uh, Covington, Kentucky kid in the MAGA hat who was facing off with the Native American guy uh, on the National Mall, where it turned out that some of the early, the kind of the the kindling uh, on Twitter for this conflagration uh, seemed to be coming from sites not in this country, sites not particularly attached to any outcome other than maybe sowing divisiveness, right? Right. And, that, and that's a common pattern where you might actually have a real body of Americans who are pushing for an issue and they're, they're no longer bots, but they started out being either fake accounts or, or bots that then created that, as you said, the kindling to push a narrative or push a conversation, which then ends up dominating the news cycle for days. Right. And I want to come back to that, too, because I think from the point of view of media literacy, which is another part of this, uh, something we need to talk about. I want to bring up uh, one more term that people might not be familiar with, automated laser phishing. And of course, that would be phishing with a pH. Tell us about that. Uh, so social engineering is this idea of, 
you don't need to just hack computers directly um, in order to take over someone's account. You can just convince them that you should give them your password, and then you can just take over their account that way. And obviously, if someone just emails you that you don't know and says, hey, can I have your password, you're probably not going to respond to them. But if it looks like they're emailing as your bank and they're like, oh, you need to log back in, here, click this link and log back in so we can make sure that we don't you know, cancel your account and take all your money, then maybe you're more likely to do that. Or if it's someone who it looks like it's actually someone who you know very well and who you shared your information in the past, um, let's say sensitive business information, then they can, they can get that information from you in that way. And this is something that, for example, was used to, uh, to get John Podesta's emails where he was spearfished. So there was a specific email that was sent to him that he would ideally trust to convince him to enter his information. And then that, that information went to WikiLeaks in the end. And so what happens when you can do this at scale where you're doing this to tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or millions of people because you can completely automate the process of creating customized, trustworthy emails? Although you sort of wonder about a tipping point there. People walk away from the pond or they just don't trust anybody or anything. Exactly right. And then that's, that I think is one of the, the other risks here is like there's just sort of giving up on entire systems of communication and sort of the negative impacts, let's say, to the economy or to, to trust in general, to all trust in all of our institutions, because none of them seem as trustworthy or as robust as, as we sort of feel like they need to be in order to, to help us function in society. I think we do need to talk about digital literacy or media literacy. We have to train people at a certain point, but what do we have to train them to do? That's a very good question. And I think you can't teach someone to do an hour of work before they trust any little piece of information like that. That's a losing game. It's, it doesn't you know, work economically. It doesn't work practically. A lot of what needs to happen is just need to, as you see information, stop. And if it, if it seems off, you know, trust your gut. Take a second to, to actually think, is there some other way where this, some, some other reason, some motivation that would have led this to be pushed to me in this way? The other side of this is that the platforms themselves can be playing an educational role here. As the technology advances to make it easier to trick people in new ways, they can provide that context. They can provide the tools that help people evaluate things more easily. And they can provide that educational material, even within their feeds, to help ensure that people using those platforms are less likely to be tricked by content on that platform. I think that's true, but I also think sort of there's a kind of a human scale problem here, and it's something that I, I've been addressing a little bit in, in talks just in the community. And, and that is, well, I mean, first of all, um, I think you, the way that you phrased it was really good, too. Like, what, what, what's really the purpose of this piece of information? Does this piece of information that you're getting right now, does it seem to exist just to make you angry at other people? Um, and, yeah, what's the probability that it's true? With, I was a, used to be a newspaper guy a million years ago, and one of my colleagues that had an editor who said, who had the three-minute mile rule, which is that if somebody walks into the newsroom and says he just ran the mile in three minutes, it's probably not true. You could devote your afternoon to going out to the high school track with this guy and making sure that he can't run the mile in three minutes. But the likelihood is that you should probably base most of your plan for dealing with him on the idea that it's probably not true. And and I do think that's part of media literacy. Start there. Look look in some of the sites like PolitiFact and, and, and Snopes that look into these kinds of things. But there's a way in which we're wired to jump on the thing that does kick our emotional tripwires and activate our viscera, right? We, we kind of want to read stuff that'll make us mad. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that is definitely one of the challenges of our time. And, and I think the, the flip side of that is 
that you can actually go too far down the road of, of quote, you know, unquote, critical thinking, mm-hmm. where you're just sort of doubting everything. And this is something that we're, we're seeing more and more in, in younger folks, where, where on one hand, you have a, a pseudoscience site that's trying to, that's providing sort of completely illegitimate medical advice. On the, on the other hand, you have the Mayo Clinic. And um, many students, they say, oh, well, the Mayo Clinic is trying to sell the doctor services, and so we can't trust it. And the pseudoscience, you know, a medicine site is trying to sell their own sort of weird, you know, potions. And so we can't trust it. And so they're really both on the same plate. They're, they're both on the same page. And so we really can't trust either one. And that that also isn't uh, isn't a very helpful place where you just don't trust anyone because they might have some motive. There needs to be this sort of ability to distinguish between the relative likelihood that that something is fact or fiction. That's a great way to put it. Uh, We're going to have to stop now. Uh, This has been a fascinating day and a fascinating conversation and a great way to end. I hope we're ending a little bit, hopefully. Uh, But uh, Oviv Ovadia, founder of the Thoughtful Technology Project, set to launch soon, uh, non-resident fellow at the German Marshall Funds Alliance for Securing Democracy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. 